Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the tragic fires that we saw on the island of Maui in Hawaii. And if you've been watching the videos and pictures that have been coming out of Hawaii, is absolutely heartbreaking. There's some terrifying videos that have come out as well. Many people in British Columbia have got a personal connection to this island. They vacation there. Some people own property there. There's lots of people in British Columbia in Maui right now. Many of them trying to get home. We'll check in with Scott Schantz, a CKNW hosting contributor in just a moment. He's at YVR. Get the latest from him. Also got Jody Vance standing by to discuss the situation. She has a family connection there uh, in Maui as well. First, let's have a listen to this report now from NBC News. The apocalyptic scene in Maui unfolded before sunrise. An island wildfire so explosive, flames poured into the Pacific, forcing the desperate to plunge into the ocean to escape the inferno. Careful right here. The Coast Guard quickly plucking roughly a dozen from the water as witnesses say the unstoppable blaze ripped across homes and took at least six lives. The smoke was just so thick, people were running around looking for refuge it was the heat was unbearable okay the death toll here standing right now at 36 could rise let's check in with scott shantz now scott is a contributor and cknw host he is at yvr scott thanks for jumping on here yeah my pleasure mike okay scott what are you hearing from people who are getting home here from maui i mean the the general consensus is extreme relief you know as people have been coming off the first plane to arrive this morning and now just the second plane we're starting to see people come off i mean no one has luggage they're all just with their carry-ons and you can see there people that have been up all night slept in their cars slept in the airports lots with families just exhausted and uh the few people that we have had a chance to talk to you can smell the smoke on their oh. clothes you know when you're by a campfire it's it's shocking so generally it's just that relief to be out of there and then of course people are just heartbroken for the island yeah are you hearing about like canceled flights delayed flights because i'm hearing about that too oh absolutely there Uh, was a, a, a third flight scheduled to be in this morning it was canceled a flight that was supposed to come in last night has been delayed and then there's another flight this morning that was delayed from a bit earlier this morning Two flights out of YVR to Maui tonight. One is canceled. The other, we're hearing it could be. Um, that's the rumor, but officially it's still going out. But, I mean, it's in general, the consensus here is just, wow, we need to get these people home, and we need to, like, they don't want anyone going back to the island for a long time. Well, what are the feelings, like you mentioned, that people just seem, like, heartbroken over what they've seen in this island? Like, people who have spent time there, if they got a personal connection there, they just fall in love with this place, and... But to see this happen is just so shocking and heartbreaking. What are, what are they saying to you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the consensus is just that um, di- disbelief, you know, people were so focused on getting out, getting home. Um, we heard stories of super long queues at the airport. Lots of people had to just sleep on the ground at the airport. You know, families just grabbing whatever they could and leaving. But once that sort of settled, you know, and you're on the plane, of course, you know, this place that people have been, you know, vacationing for years, it's gone. And that's just kind of settling in for a lot of these people and a lot of sadness. You can see it on their faces. It's it's rough. Okay, Scott, busy morning for you at the airport. Great job. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, that is Scott Schantz there, CKNW hosting contributor at, the, at YVR, and he continues to speak to British Columbians who are traveling back from Maui. Got Jody Vance standing by. Now, have a listen to this here. There are so many heartbreaking videos that have been uploaded to social media, especially TikTok, and some of these are tragic. I was looking at some of them last night, and a lot of them are tough to watch. Have a listen to Ali B here. In this, She's a Maui resident, and this is what she posted on TikTok. It's crazy. I've never personally seen a fire like this on Maui. Millions and millions of dollars of damage. Hundreds and hundreds of people have been displaced. I don't even want to know how many people we're going to find out have lost their lives because of this fire. Because there was no call in 911. There is no service. Those people that were driving through the fire to evacuate were literally on their own. Okay, let's check in with Jody Vance now. She's a host here on CKNW. She's a regular host here of this show. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Jody, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, Jody, let's talk a little bit about your, your family's connection there, right? Because you spent a lot of time on Maui when, when, you, were, when you were a kid, right? Yeah, I'm, I had my 16th birthday on Maui. I started going there when I was 12 years old. I'm 55. My family was, you know, that was our snowbird destination. My mom and my stepdad started with a, a, a timeshare back in the 80s and ended up living half the year there for the past number of decades. And, and it was the place we went. It's, you know, we were so lucky. I, I have to say that I feel for the Hawaiian people, the locals, yeah. the Kamaina. It's very emotional. It's like we're all in shock. We're in shock about this beautiful place um, that is really we've been so lucky to have as our playground. I hope all of um, those who who have this connection to it find a way to help the people of Maui uh, watching those those stories as you as you just played that one TikTok video. It's one of many I've just I've been looking at the devastation in Lahaina and this place that, you know, dates back to the 1700s. It's so historic. It, it's just, it's, it's the first place you would go. You would, yeah. you would arrive there. You would, you would settle in. We were in Mailea Bay, which was in between Kihei and Lahaina, right south of the airport. That was where our home was for the better part of, you know, 30 plus years. Since um, letting go of that home, we've, we've returned to the island yearly. My parents would go for a month at a time uh, till up right before the pandemic hit. But we would always, you know, get settled, unpack, have a, a good night's sleep. And then we'd go to Lahaina the next day and you'd walk through Old Town and and have a cheeseburger in paradise or, or stop in at, you know, Fleetwood's. Uh, Wayne Sitch, who is the chef at Joe Forte's, the executive chef at Mick Fleetwood's restaurant on Front Street, what was Front Street Lahaina. And, you know, he was my first thought yesterday morning when I woke up to the news in the wee hours and I, I reached out to Chef Wayne and and he was not in, in Lahaina at the time, but he was, you know, looking for his people and and, and trying to find out the, you know, the status of, of the place. And, and now we know the status is is 
terror and horrific. And, and we're just hopeful that the people are safe. And, and 36, as you mentioned, likely a number that's going to increase. Yeah. And Lahaina has been, it's been flattened. I mean, it's just gone. It, the, the whole town seems to have just burned down. I mean, it's just shocking to see these, these photos. And, and can you talk a little bit about like, what, is your parents' place near there? Well, it's about a 15 minute drive to yeah. 20 minute drive down the highway. So like the equivalent of maybe, um, you know, going from False Creek to Wreck Beach, yeah. it, it, you know, just to kind of put that into Vancouver context, uh, you know, just winding around this beautiful road and then you come upon Lahaina and, you know, we, even as people who considered ourselves Kama'aina, you know, locals, we have a, a home there, um, would, would go and, and experience the luau, the, the King Kamehameha luau in, in Lahaina and, and just feel the culture and learn of what Hawaii uh, has evolved through the years to become. And, and Lahaina was the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom from 1820 mm. to 1845. And you learn about the deep cultural significance of this place and the banyan tree, yeah. this beautiful, huge tree that is now burnt. It's gone. Like the whole of Front Street where people had galleries and restaurants. And, and certainly, you know, we, we think about the, the fronting of it and the businesses, but there were so many homes, Mike, in Lahaina, so many local people, like the the thriving tourism community, as you heard from Scott there at the airport, and the fact, you know, I am a tourist there, I'm a tourist who called it home, but uh, you, you know, the thriving tourist community is is this is just devastating on so yeah. many levels, and also a fire up in Kula. It wasn't just Lahaina; like a lot of locals have been incredibly impacted on this small, small island where you couldn't call 911, you couldn't get cell service, people jumping into the ocean to escape fire, Coast Guard plucking people from the water, uh, yeah. dodging debris. It's just been a horror story. It's not, a, it's not an island that you associate with, with wildfire. I mean, wildfire no. has become kind of um, a fact of life for us here in British Columbia every year. And by the way, we'll be, we'll be talking about the BC wildfires as well on the show here in the next segment but in hawaii so lush tropical i mean have you ever thought of wildfires as a threat there a major one you know what interesting interesting you bring this up mike because for decades and i'm talking decades we were there months and months of the year every year for decades and it was exactly that it was lush it was pineapples it was it was sugarcane fields it was it was you know dripping humidity no one has right. air conditioning on maui and the last couple of times i was there as i mentioned i was there in 2019 and also in 2018 our whole family went for christmas in 2018 and then my son and i just went to to stay with my parents who were there for a couple of months in 2019 just before the pandemic hit and both 2018 and 2019 there were wildfires happening when i was there which was odd. And I was, I felt off about it. I was like, this seems oddly familiar. And I started to look at those typically lush green, almost like imagine the movie King Kong. Like we yeah. would jokingly look up to those hills and say, that's where King Kong lives um, with the kids. And now it's crispy and dry. And in 2019, I was there for, for, for 14, 17 days actually. And all 17 days was above 95 degrees with trade winds that were like the trade winds that come off the island out to sea. Uh, these fires were, were um, basically a wall of flame because of 80 mile per hour trade winds sparked by Hurricane Dora that was passing hundreds of miles to the south. And, and I had never 
seen anything like that. I'd never been hot in Maui yeah. and hot day and night and, and crispy and dry. And there had been a wildfire that threatened Lahaina back in 2019. And, and it felt very eerily familiar. And they say that these impacts of climate change don't happen in the driest spots and, and hottest spots in the world. They start to the shift in the jet stream, that pineapple express that usually hits us and gives us that rain from there is not hitting there. So right. it's, you know, I'm no expert uh, on such things, but the trend has been starkly clear. All right. Let's talk about the move in British Columbia to change your kids' report cards. So no more letter grades, right? The old-fashioned A, B, C, and D, those are being dropped from a kid's report cards here in the lower grades. Why are they doing that? Well, one of the reasons is uh, supporters of dropping letter grades saying that letter grades produce stress and anxiety for kids. I don't know, man. I think as a parent, I, I kind of prefer the ABCD. Gives me a nice clear picture how my kid's doing at school. Uh, the education ministry feels differently about it. I got Tara Houle standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. This is Nathan Ricky. He is an education researcher at Queen's University. He, what he calls this obsession with grading kids is actually harmful for our kids. Here's what he had to say yesterday to Simi Sarah. That fuels this sort of grading obsession, which we know is harmful for students' well-being and learning. If you're focused on, you know, doing well on assessments and doing well on tests, more than learning, you might be driven to what we call shallow learning approaches like memorizing information and uh, learning, you know, sort of test strategies that are helpful on tests but not really helpful in the real world. Okay, so he says that this obsession with letter grades is actually harmful for kids. It leads to what he described as shallow learning, where kids are simply memorizing stuff in class in order to get a good mark in a test. So you're better off to drop the A, B, C, D, or and the F, and... Instead, these new descriptors you'll see in your kids' report cards, emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. Those are the words that replace A, B, C, D. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tara Hull. Tara is a mom and education advocate, especially for mathematics in our schools. And I'm very pleased to welcome Tara back to the show. Tara, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to be here, Mike. Thank you. Okay, it's nice to have you again. So when we listen to, I mean, you've heard a lot of these arguments for dropping letter grades, and I know, I know you have a different perspective on it, but when you hear, like Nathan described, that we, have, we seem to have an obsession with grading our kids with a letter grade system, is, is that how you see it? Is it, an, is it an obsession we have over this? Uh, no, I, I, that might be his opinion, um, and he, he's entitled to that. However, I mean, grades are, are part of a successful education system. It's part of the reason why we've, we've always used them, because it's, it's a marker to determine, first of all, where improvement's required, and then, you know, what a child is learning. It's not just the be-all and the end-all. I mean, but the, the, the big thing that he's really, you know, harping on is that, you know, these things are, are, and tests are stressing kids out, but... What about the fact that um, we've tried this before, not getting rid of letter grades here in British Columbia. It tried it for a while in the 60s and 70s, and it was an absolute failure, so they got rid of it in a pilot project. And the other reason is that his, the data that he's suggesting is just wrong. 
it's just wrong. And what, why, we, why we have these letter grades is that it, it's just, it provides a snapshot both to the kid as well as to the parents um, so um, they know what they need to do and it's information that they can easily understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why I think I prefer to, as a parent, like when I look at my own children's report cards, as I did recently at the end of the last school year, that I like to have a, a nice, clear picture of how my child child is doing. Uh, so it didn't really bother me at all to see the ABCDs there for sure. What about when he talks about this, this shallow learning concept that if kids are driven to get a good A or B, on a test that they will simply turn into, I guess, like robots to try and memorize material they feel or expect to be on the test. And that's a, that's a shallow learning process. What do you think of that? Sure. Well, there, there's been overwhelming evidence, uh, you know, basically on this topic. Um, and, and basically what I would then ask him is that what does he exactly plan to replace these tests and these exams and letter grades with? I mean, as we already know, like, uh, you know, Teacher, you know, these group work and these projects based on what the teacher is basically assuming um, this child learns or doesn't learn, I mean, doesn't necessarily give any kind of a standardized assessment in terms of a benchmark, which then would allow the teacher to really know, you know, whether this child is, is learning or not. We know that, like, exams do a really good job in terms of understanding where a child needs improvement and where, and where they're at, along with the grades. Um, and in terms of the, the shallow learning argument, I mean, it's schooling, a good system has always included a whole bunch of learning, not just memorization, but you need to actually understand something before you can demonstrate what you're learning, and that includes memorization. So I, I, I fundamentally just disagree with him if he thinks that the only thing that schools are good for are for memorizing, you know, because we don't even have that here in British Columbia anymore. I mean, this whole stuff has been going on now for over 20 years in terms of going away from the traditional education system, which incorporated all of these successful learning systems um, into something that, you know, has already failed elsewhere. Speaking of Tara Hool, we're talking about dropping letter grades through grade 9 on your kid's report card. Let's listen to another one of his arguments here, Tara, and get your thoughts. So this is Nathan Rickey from Queen's University speaking yesterday to our own Simi Sarah about how letter grades, the letter grade system that we're dropping uh, was not really working for kids. Let's have a listen. In a grading system, it really puts a lot of pressure on students to perform on these tests, and that really shapes the way they learn. And we also know it drives things like test anxiety and depression among students. Okay, test anxiety and depression. And we know, Tara, a lot of parents out there know that anxiety among kids is a problem for a lot of families these days, for sure. Does right. Do you think letter grades produce even more anxiety and even depression for kids? No, it's not that the tests and the grades are the problem. It's actually a lack of preparedness using evidence-based methods in the classroom and implement um, that, that are no longer existent in a lot of places anymore. It's the fact that kids aren't becoming comfortable with the material because they're not really doing any practice in the classroom or at home. They're not um, being, you know, you know, subjected to any kind of quizzes or just like low-risk exams in the classroom. And so when they're finally, you know, at some point having to, you know, maneuver that way throughout having any knowledge in their brain. I mean, of course, it's going to, you know, like make them stressed. But I mean, there is some level of stress, which is good for kids. I mean, that's what gets everybody going to try to do better. But 
there you have to actually ensure that the kids have a lot of knowledge before you take that test and that is something that he's not even touching on and the other thing that I'm really discouraged to hear that somebody in his position in academia is suggesting is that teacher bias is never mentioned and this is just more of a human nature thing and this is why in any successful system you still do need to have outside measures such as you know again the provincial exams and the letter grades so that you know that there's something that's monitoring all of the kids and 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 getting beyond just what a a teacher thinks teachers are very important to our system but we need more measures than just that Okay, let's listen to another one of his comments here, Nathan Ricky, Queen's University. So here he is talking. He goes a little bit further into the whole test, test anxiety for kids. Okay, so let's have a listen. We rely too much on tests and assessments. We're really focusing on certain skills like memorization. Um, students who have severe test anxiety are likely to not perform as well on tests, but that doesn't necessarily represent their learning accurately. Okay, so he's arguing that a kid who has test anxiety is more likely to do poorly on a test and that not may not be fair to that child because maybe this kid is learning more and is doing better in school than is reflected in the letter grade. The thing that I find weird about this is we're replacing A, B, C, and D with these terms emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. I mean... You're still producing a report card with some sort of measurable or or standard. How is that any different? Like, how is, you know, how why wouldn't a kid not now suddenly have anxiety about, I want to be get a proficient mark on my report card? Right. And that's going to cause anxiety. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying exactly. Yeah. And again, I just want to go back to this point with respect to test anxiety. Yeah. Um, he, he's he's confusing anxiety, I think, a lot of the times with stress. And you know, if 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 we're avoiding these tests altogether because they're so-called um, causing student stress, then students will never get any better at managing stressful situations. So again, I mean, we we just need to you know prepare students for those situations with lots of low-stakes retrieval practice, so that they become comfortable and confident in their learning so that they can go ahead and they can perform very well because that's just life. I mean, we talk about, you know, preparing kids for the real world. I mean, you go to any construction site nowadays and you're going to find math equations all over the place because, you know, these people that are working there, they need to, they need to know this stuff, right? Or if you have a refrigeration and electrical business, I mean, there's so many now that are sending these grown, you know, guys and, and women back to school to learn basic math because they cannot pass their exams in order to be licensed. So in terms of, you know, this proficiency scale versus the letter grades, I mean, I, I guess in a way, I mean, there is no difference in terms of, of, of decreasing the amount of stress that a child would go through because it's still something that, you know, that, that you'll have to kind of grade a child on. I mean, that's just part of being an educator. But yeah. in terms of suggesting that this is better, there's no proof for that. And that's, again, the whole thing. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, subjectively for one or two kids, it might work for them. But this is we're talking about changing an entire system. We're talking about overhauling it and making sure that all 43,000 teachers are on board and over 580,000 students like this will make it better. Where's the proof to show or to indicate that this this is a more successful change? Mm. I haven't seen it and nobody else has either because it's not there. 
All right. Talking about dropping letter grades from kids' report cards through grade 9, A, B, C, D is gone, replaced by these new descriptors, emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. My guest, education advocate, Tara Hool. Lots of calls. Rich in Surrey. Hi, Rich. Go ahead. Yeah, I've been listening to this this nonsense here, and it seems to me as though there is a systemic attack on measuring um, our youth, and it is coming from academia, and I think what people need to understand is life is measurable, and you are going to be in a competitive environment all through your life, whether it's competing for, you know, women or men, or competing for money or your career, or competing, I mean, we're, we're entering an extremely competitive workforce, and the other, the other point is, is so what if kids are stressed? And so what if they have anxiety? Stress and anxiety is part of life. And you got these mm. these people that are trying to, to shelter our kids from the realities of life so that they don't have the coping mechanism and the healthy skills to be able to deal with the realities of life. And then they wonder why they're a useless pet when they're your adults, <laughs> right? And they can't handle being able to maintain a marriage or uh, uh, pay a mortgage or, you know, they need to go retreat to their safe space and medicate themselves because they're ineffective. You know, okay, okay. Crap. Thank you for that, Tara. What do you think of that? I think he pretty much nailed, you know, all of the, all, uh, all of this, you know, these points, you know, very well and very eloquently. I mean, it's almost like is like, is the government trying to get out of the education business? I mean, really, like, Based on like what inf- what what data and what information um, you know are they using to incorporate all of these changes which were unfounded, which we already know are fa- you know are failed because it's tried before and it didn't work. So why are they re- redoing this again? I mean, the education minister should be fired. Like this is educational malpractice. Well, I mean, I'm taking a look at the education ministry report on this, and, and they say, well, no, this is backed up by science and studies, and and they say it supports a lifelong learning by shifting the focus from marks on a report card to developing competencies among the the child, the student, and you know, I think we could all agree we all we all want the same outcome. We want to produce kids that are confident and. And have learned, have done great in school, and and do have the competencies and that we expect from them that they need in life. But I'm just not sure why how this proficiency scale is is any different from or more effective than an A B C D. It's no, not. Just, yeah. And 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 any and and if they're going to say, well, we have science and research to back up our claims, where is uh, it? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of a generalized statement. You know, oh yeah, we it's, we have the research. Well, I'd like yeah. to see it. I like yeah. to see it. So that, um, and I like to see it shown, you know, elsewhere in other jurisdictions, which have shown how successful it's been. And they can't do that because it doesn't exist. Let's go to Jill on the line in New West. Hi, Jill. Go ahead. Hi. I just want to say, you know, we've all had teachers that love us and teachers that don't. And I think that allowing uh, personality to enter in to measure a child's success is actually wrong. Um, and I also feel that, you know, he was going on about um, how memorizing things and whatnot um, is shallow or damaging or whatever he said. But yeah. look, we all memorized our ABCs and we all memorized our one, two, threes. And there's generations and generations of people out there that have worked through an ABC system without a teacher's personality involved in it. And their, their successes are measured. 
Yeah. Uh, thank you, Joe. I think it's a good point. Let's squeeze in one more call. Antonio in Burnaby. Antonio, you have 30 seconds here. Okay, yeah, it's just, uh, I'll say this is nonsensical, and I don't know if you guys touched on, when they sent out the letter to us from school, it said that they're looking to extend that into the graduation years to, they want to discuss with universities. Yeah. That just seems crazy yeah, no, that's that, a- that, 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 that they would think that that's going to work in, in, in the world. People, and that's a great point. Thank, thank, you, thank you for making that point, because that is the case, that they may, this right now is through grade 9, but it could be extended in, uh, outlying years as well, and there's also an argument to drop it from post-secondary colleges and universities as well. Tara, we got more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate that. Thanks for this, uh, Mike. All right, let's talk about this government squabbling over housing now. We all know we need housing. We're in a housing crisis here. The unaffordable market we've got in Metro Vancouver, the sky-high rents, it is a huge problem, and there's lots of pressure on all levels of government to do something about it. But take a look at all the squabbling going on here now among these different levels of government. You got the provinces are mad at the feds. You got Justin Trudeau shooting back at the provinces. You got municipalities are not happy about whether they should be responsible for zoning more housing. I mean, it, the finger pointing and the arguing is, is ridiculous, really. I got Ron Butler standing by to discuss. Now, first, let's have a listen to Trudeau here. Now, this is the comment from last week, got a lot of attention. Okay, so Trudeau was in Ontario, he was in the city of Hamilton, and he showed up with $45 million for the city of Hamilton to build new rental units there in Hamilton. Now, that set everybody off. Because a lot of the provinces were saying, well, where's our money? Some other municipalities were saying, hey, we want some money too here for housing. Now listen how Trudeau responds on this, especially when he's getting grief from the provinces here about the Fed should do more for housing. Listen to what he said here. I'll be blunt as well. Housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. It's uh, not something that we have direct carriage of. But it is something that we can and must help with. That's something we disagreed with our previous conservative colleagues <laughs> okay hey it's not our it's not our responsibility here folks all right trudeau say this is not federal responsibility or housing don't be criticizing me man oh man that's set the, that set his critics off we'll play some more clips of what people said in response to that let's check in with ron butler now mortgage broker butlermortgage.ca very pleased to welcome him back to the show hey ron Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, so when Justin Trudeau says, look, this is not primary federal responsibility here. Don't be criticizing me about housing. It's not even my job here. Has he got a point? Is he right? Well, two things. One, if you bring in a million people, a million (laughs) new people a year to Canada for three years, I guess that's going to have an unmanageable impact, and you're totally responsible for immigration, like utterly, completely. You're it, okay? That's number one. Now, number two, the horror show that this may be a strategy, a political strategy to point the finger at provincial governments, municipalities, and cities, and say, hey, it's all their fault until closer to an election when some new grand strategy suddenly emerges from the PMO's office. Okay, Trudeau's office comes up with some new magnificent housing strategy just before an election. But in up, yeah. leading up to the election, 
point at everybody else and lay blame. I mean, that's a scary, scary idea that that could be a strategy. I think there probably is some political calculation going on, going on for sure here, because no one wants to take the blame for this mess for sure. Let's have a listen to his main opponent here, Ron. So this is conservative leader Pierre Polyev and responding to this comment by Trudeau saying, Trudeau saying that, look, this is not, this is not federal responsibility or how, don't look at me. Okay. On housing. This is not a federal responsibility. Here's what Pierre Polyev said in response to that. That's funny. Because eight years ago, he promised he was going to lower housing costs. It's also funny that the biggest housing agency in Canada, CMHC, is federal. Mortgage insurance, federal. Taxes, fiscal and monetary policy, federal, federal, federal. Okay, and you could, you could add immigration policy there as well, as you pointed out, Ron. What do you think of Polyev's response on it? Well, it's just truthful. All it is yeah. is truthful. And let's face it, um, the, the guy who runs the Bank of Canada... Uh, doesn't just come out of uh, the air like eventually it's cabinet approves that person okay so uh, everything devolves federal except yeah the actual license the 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 actual permits and the uh, discussions about which land is going to be used to build on he's right those two things are not those those nuts and bolts things are not directly federally response responsibilities but hold on a second like at the end of the day there's nothing with a greater correlation to this whole problem than immigration. Because yeah. when we look at the province of Quebec, who has their own special deal where they only let in 50,000 new Canadians a year in the province of Quebec, everybody else goes to the rest of the, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands go to British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario in the main. Okay. Yeah. So if that's the truth, then. Why are Quebec house prices basically half price of Ontario and 65% less than, than Vancouver? Like, how did that happen? Well, there might be a correlation here. I am so pro-immigration, you can't imagine. But yeah. I think the greatest thing we have to do for people coming to Canada is make sure there's rationally priced housing for those people. And we're certainly failing in that job. Okay, speaking of the, the province of Alberta, so this was an interesting pushback from Alberta on some of these comments from Trudeau as well. When Trudeau was saying, don't look at me, it's not my responsibility on housing. And he's saying this at the same time he's in the city of Hamilton with a $45 million housing check. Now, you had other provinces immediately pipe up and say, hang on a second here, how come this city in, in Ontario is getting this money for badly needed rental in the city of Hamilton? Where's our money too here? Now, have a listen to the Alberta Social Services Minister here, Jason Nixon. This is after Trudeau had delivered $45 million to Hamilton, Ontario. Here's what the Alberta minister had to say. For them to provide more money to one city in Ontario than the entire province of Alberta is unacceptable. We expect the federal government to pony up Alberta's cash that we're owed for those projects. <laughs> yeah, pony up our cash here. There's probably cabinet ministers in every province in Canada with their handout as well. What do you think of this now? Because when, when you're talking, Ron, about election timing, as we get closer to another federal election here, and Trudeau appears to be in some trouble in the opinion polls here, I suspect he's going to be going to a lot of cities with cash in hand for housing. Your thoughts? There may be some bribes, you're right. But here's <laughs> the worst news. There's the worst news about the Hamilton 45 million. Yeah. Uh, it's only about 290 units, and here it gets even worse. Half of it is repairing units. Yeah. It's not even new. Honestly, this is this is just the, the sheer disintegration of money. Yeah, I'm glad that there's going to be 290 
uh, either refurbished and a few new rental accommodations in Hamilton, but it's an astronomical amount of money to spend as usual for government. And yeah, is he going to go from city to city on a check writing tour? I mean, this is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to find a real answer to getting house prices down. If we don't have somebody who's got the guts to say they need to come down, we're we're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. Speaking of Ron Butler, Butler Mortgage. Now, when we take a look at the situation, and you've got your finger on the pulse of this every single day, Ron, like the picture that you're seeing out there, the crisis that we're facing, what is the answer? I mean, you just touched briefly on it there. That yeah, we need we need prices to come down. Sure. How do you do that though? I mean, is there any role? What is the role for government in that, and and how can it be accomplished? Well, first of all, it starts with looking at how much of the price of new construction is all government related. How much are taxes, fees, development costs, like all the things that government ladles in to and takes their share of the price of every new house. You know, in Ontario, I don't know about British Columbia, but in Ontario, it's 31% of every new build is in some way, shape or form. The price of every new build is in some way, shape or form going to government levels of government, whether it's provincial, federal, or municipal. Well, if 31% of all the cost of your brand new house is going to government, why can't government lower that cost? Let's ask government to get involved in just not charging so much and the yeah. prices will come down accordingly. Yeah. Going back to that immigration issue, we touched on this briefly earlier in the show, too. The record high immigration targets that the government has sent. It was interesting to see the recent federal cabinet shuffle there where the immigration minister, Sean Fraser, was was shuffled aside. And I thought, OK, is this a signal there may be going to sort of ratchet down some of these immigration numbers because there's been a pushback from provinces and business leaders for precisely the reasons that you just described. Like, we don't have enough housing. There's already pressure on schools and hospitals. Hang on a second. Can we absorb this many people in such a short time? Then he shuffles out his immigration minister. And then, lo and behold, though, the new immigration minister comes in and doubles down on the numbers. So there was no budging at all here. No blinking at all from Trudeau on these immigration numbers. He's going full on record high immigration. Are, are you saying that what you think the immigration numbers are too high? The, they should scale those back? I think they have to be managed. I yeah. think that if you have them all going to the all the new immigrants going to the same places, that you're going to put infinite pressure, particularly on three provinces. We've got a province that has a population of over 7 million that only lets 50,000 in. So we have a disproportionate degree of impact on British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario that results in people fighting. Those people don't just show up and buy a house, but they sure do need a place to rent. So yes. the rents have gone through the roof in all those provinces, like uh, exorbitant, like unmanageable. Yeah. And yet we don't have a method to manage it. So the former immigration minister is now the housing minister. Holy yeah, yeah, mackerel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's going to be something interesting. Yeah. Uh, look, we have to understand that the government can't abandon a key file, even, even though they, they don't control the nuts and bolts of it. They sure pull the levers on how many people are coming. They can't just give up on that key file and simultaneously say, no, we're going to keep the level of immigration at the highest it's been for 100 years. Yeah. There, there just has to be some kind of solution and not pretend these two things are independent of each other. 
Well, especially on housing starts, like if you take a look at the immigration targets and compare that to housing, I mean, we're just we're just simply not building enough homes for the people that are are coming. It's it's the disparity is 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 bleak. It's very stark. And yeah, no, it's 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 the the housing peak was twenty twenty one. It's been falling ever since, and it'll be lower yeah. again next year. So, yeah, exactly. Like we're not building enough stuff for sure. And now, look, you said you're pro immigration. Yeah, I mean, I think any reasonable person is pro immigration. You know, we have a skills shortage. We need workers. We need skilled workers. We need people working in this country paying taxes to support our seniors who have got entitlement programs like old age security and Canada Pension Plan and Medicare. You know, we need people working and paying taxes. So this is the rationale for more for more people coming to the country. But how do we like do you know, is there a quick fix to get get this how get these housing starts ramped up? Well, there's nothing quick in housing. Like yeah. even the most basic housing takes a year to build. I mean, that's the very most basic uh, low rise housing. Uh, but what we have to realize is we're taking at this point zero action. There are there is zero action taking place. Housing starts are falling. Now, yeah. that might mean we have to think a little bit more about things like student housing, sorry, student new international students coming to Canada, which there's like 450,000, 500,000. We might have to think that uh, temporary workers uh, who are not necessarily ever going to live here permanently, they might have to be a few less of those, but there has to be something happen. We just can't build fewer houses, have rents going up every year and import a million people. It's not fair to the people who are coming in. It's not fair to those immigrants to dump them into a situation that's almost unmanageable in terms of cost of living. It's just not fair. Ron, thank you for your time today. I always appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right, let's continue talking about this housing market in Metro Vancouver, and let's talk about the rental jungle out there. So many people finding it tough to find a decent, affordable place to rent in this city, in the region. And we've talked a lot about this on the show. And you take a look at some of these rents that are coming out now, some of the more recent numbers for a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver, talking like $3,000 a month. A two bedroom is like four grand. And if you're looking to rent a larger home, well, of course, it goes even higher than that. Now, we have talked to a lot of people on the show who are they've got good jobs. I mean, we're talking people who have got good incomes, good, good, stable jobs. And even if you've got a good job, though, and you're making some good money, it is still difficult to find a place to rent in this city, including my next guest, Christina Marcano. Christina is a a fashion entrepreneur. She's a business leader in our province. She's standing by. Now, I encourage you to give her a follow on social media because she's got some great stuff on there. And she's documented her search for her family search to rent, uh, rent a house in Vancouver after they were facing eviction from the place they were renting before. Let's have a listen to uh, Christina's TikTok on that. Have a listen. Somebody would post for, say, 5000 message right away, yes, you can come see the house. Ten minutes later, I'd get a notification that the price had increased to 5500 Ten minutes later, the price had increased to 6000 Ten minutes later, 6200 And these aren't nice houses. Okay, my guest is Christina Marcato. I'm very pleased to welcome Christina to the show. Christina, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, Christina, congratulations on all your success, because I've just been learning a little bit about your company. You're in the fashion business, and you started it, You started it at your company out of your house, right? And it's grown from there. 
Yeah, we started it. Well, I've been in the business for almost 20 years, but this company started about nine years ago in the basement of my home. Yeah, what's the name of your company? If you want, do you want to say? Yeah, it's called Silver Icing, and we're yeah. based out of South Surrey. Yeah, Silver Icing Clothing, and, and people should check out your website there. And a lot of a lot of listeners may be familiar with with your fashions for sure. So, Christina, you've had a lot of success in business. You're a business leader in our province here, but man, like even people who've got really good stable jobs like yourself are are struggling to find a, a, a rental in the city. So, let's talk about your your family situation there, because you were renting a house before, right? But what happened there? You got you got evicted, or what happened? Yeah, so we were renting the house we started the business in. Uh, We've been renting it for about nine years, and we felt pretty stable in it, and it really allowed us to focus on our business and building our our actual company. Um, And uh, very unexpectedly, we got a text saying, uh, we are thinking about selling the house, and we're going to send somebody in to evaluate it. A few days later, they said we're listing. A few days after that, they came in to take pictures and it sold uh, after the first open house, which was about a week later. So it was a, oh a big kind of shock for us because we'd been in the house for a long time. We had planned on staying for at least another couple of years. Uh, wow. So it kind of threw this summer through a loop for us, for sure. Yeah, as soon, uh, as soon as someone's coming over to the house to, to inspect it and take some photos and stuff, oh man, you know the writing's on the wall, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So when do you have to be out of there? So we actually, so that happened at the beginning of June. Good. They, uh, it sold by the middle of June. And then we got our notice uh, on the 1st of July. We had until the end of August. So we had two months, which is, you know, a, a fair bit of time, but not a lot at the same time. Yeah. And especially when you've been living somewhere for nine years. Um, so we ended up, we were looking right away. As soon as we kind of got whiff of the fact that this might be happening, we started looking right away. Um, and we ended up finding a place. I felt like we couldn't delay on it, even though it was a little higher in price point than we were hoping for. Um, but we ended up accepting that place and moving within two weeks. So we're actually in the new house now. Okay. But I know you were, you went through some panic, uh, looking for a place and, Man, when I went through your TikTok videos there the other night, I was like, wow, some of the prices here that you were quoting and the price increases, like we've heard about prices going up, you know, large increases in rent year over year or even month to month. But you're talking like minute to minute here, how the rent would go up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that was the most disheartening thing is when you first or when we first started looking, first of all, there was a lineup of people. Um, So I, I... I think the stat is that there's nine people looking for every one house available. Um, So there was a lot of competition for it. But I think the most disheartening thing was when you'd see a place online and you'd get kind of excited about it, you'd message right away, and then that price would increase rapidly over the next hour. And then sometimes they just wouldn't say anything about it if you'd already messaged with them. Uh, And sometimes they would email back and say, you know what, just so you know, we've had to increase the price. Uh, because there's been so much demand for it that we we feel like we undervalued it. Uh, and that happened so many times. It was, yeah, so when you would see a place, you wouldn't be guaranteed that that was going to be the rent when you actually went to go view it. Actually, the place we're in right now was advertised for about 300 less than we've ended up having to go with, um, mm. which is... Yeah, and and you were look and you're looking for like a detached house to rent, right? 
We were, yeah. So we've got three kids um, and we were hoping to, our girls have been sharing um, a room in our current house. So we were hoping with this next move that we would be able to allow everybody to have their own room and spread out a little bit, especially as they get into their teenage years. Um, And then my husband also works from home. So we need a home office as well. So we were looking for a larger home um, and that was definitely limited, uh, but then also the cost was a lot higher. So it was challenging. Oh yeah, and when you and that clip we played from your TikTok where you looked at one place that was five thousand, then it went to five fifty-five, then it went to six thousand, then it went to sixty-two hundred. <laughs> like it's just yeah. going up minute by minute, you know. Yeah, well, and, and, and those, that's like a lot of those. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. a lot of those houses were shared accommodation as well. They had oh. the um, the basement was tenanted. So that was also challenging for us. We were really, we didn't feel like we wanted to move into a house that was tenanted, especially for that cost. So that limited our search as well. Right. Speaking to Christina Marcano, she's a fashion entrepreneur. Silver Icing Clothing is her company uh, about her family search for a a rental home. Now, you know, for people listening, and I think some people might be thinking, and you you address this in, in a couple of your TikTok videos too, like why not? I mean, you're a successful entrepreneur. You have your own company. Why not buy a house, right? And and yeah. you, you broke that down and the cost of that on, on one of your videos. Can you talk a little bit about that, like the cost of buying? Yeah, for sure. I found that actually to be one of the most fascinating things is how much we got this comment. Um, you know, for our personal situation, it might be different for others, but um, renting really gave us a lot of freedom. We were able to, uh, our rents were fairly good. Our rent was fairly good because we'd been there for nine years. So we were able to use, um, you know, the extra income that we might have been putting into a mortgage or the maintenance or the extra hidden costs that you you have when you're buying. We were able to put that into our business and uh, some of the commercial real estate because we bought the buildings that we're operating out of. Um, so now we're in a position where we weren't looking to move. Uh, obviously our rent is doubled. It has actually doubled since we moved into our new house. Um, So yeah, so I think the most obvious question is why wouldn't you just buy? Uh, But even with it doubling, we are still less than the mortgage would be on the house that we're renting right now. Uh, So we would have had to sacrifice somewhere. We would have had to downsize uh, to get that similar rate. But also there's all the hidden costs. And one of the The best reminders of that was the night that we moved into our house, our new rental, uh, one of the hot water pipes burst and it went, it almost ruined the kitchen. Actually, if my husband hadn't have been there, we probably wouldn't have been able to move into it. Um, So we were able to turn the water off and and kind of save the floor. But then the homeowners had all of the costs of fixing all the pipes and they're still in there uh, fixing it. So there's all the hidden costs that happen with homeownership. And we just aren't in a position where we feel like that's going to be the best um, energy for our finances or our our attention. We really like to focus on our business. So that's why we've chosen to rent. Okay, Christina, last question for you there as you've gone through this process here. You know, I've talked to a lot of people on the show or in similar circumstances. They may have, you know, they've got really good stable jobs. They might not be the CEO of a company like yourself, but they've got a good paying job. And guess what? They can't find an affordable place to rent in this city. What do you think the answer is to this? I mean, do you think we need like more I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're in the, you're in the private sector business in, in the market, but do you think we need more like government step in, do more social housing? Is that the answer? What do you think? You know, I have, I have rotated through this question so many times trying to see if there's some answer that I might be able to help with. 
<clears throat> I think as I've gone through the process, it's changed a little bit. <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure if government intervention is the way to go. I mean, it is a free market. There is a definite increase in uh, listings that are going up for an eight month period. So we're seeing a lot, or from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of Airbnb style yeah. conversions yeah. that are now you know, now that the high season is kind of over, they're trying to rent it from September or October until May, and then they're going to put it back on the Airbnb market. I think that's been challenging because there is a number of those rentals available that would typically be a long-term rental. Um, wow. So, but I just, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I think that we're going to see a natural progression with how this is going to play out. Um, but it's very challenging right now. And we like we employ about 75 people in South Surrey. And oh. I think the biggest thing that's that's brought to my attention through all of this is how all of the people that currently work at our operation are going to handle this. I mean, if any of them have to go through either an eviction or um, any kind of move, the the cost that they're facing associated with that right now is just astronomical and it, it's yeah. not very feasible. So I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately. Um, you know, yeah, it's just, okay. it's alarming. It is. It is for sure. That, I certainly agree with you on that. Christina, thank you for sharing your story today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the mad scramble here for Taylor Swift tickets at her Canadian shows. Of course, she announced a series of shows in Toronto. Oh, too bad, so sad for Vancouver here, not coming to our city, but she will be playing a series of shows in Toronto. Tickets on sale. Uh, they've been going on sale at staggered dates this week. Tickets on sale once again today. And, of course, they're being snapped up immediately as soon as they go online and Ticketmaster there. Now, for people who are trying to get these tickets, and there are people in Vancouver trying to get Taylor Swift tickets for the Toronto shows. If you were unlucky and you did not get tickets, well, you are certainly not alone. Uh, the Globe and Mail, looking at their story there, they did an analysis on the chance of actually buying a Taylor Swift ticket to a Toronto show. <laughs> they figured it's about 1 in 400 chance. Okay, now check this out. There is a lawsuit underway. Taylor Swift fans going to court. They're suing Ticketmaster over some of these inflated ticket prices and other issues. I got Julie Barfa standing by. She is the lead plaintiff in the case. And I'm really looking forward to talking to her about this. Let's have a listen first to a news story about the case. This is from ABC News. Let's listen. This morning, Taylor Swift fans making it clear who they are rooting for after what they say was a disastrous experience with Ticketmaster and getting amped for a hearing with the company in Los Angeles tomorrow. They say Ticketmaster intentionally misled them back in November, alleging the company engaged in fraud, price fixing and antitrust violations. We are not going to just settle. We, we want to see some change happen. We want to see a difference being made. They say Ticketmaster intentionally charged sky-high fees and sold their tickets to scalpers. It's baffling that they could have screwed it up this badly. Okay, that report from ABC News, and you heard the voice of Julie Barfus in that story. She is one of the lead plaintiffs in this uh, court case against Ticketmaster, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Julie, thank you for coming on today. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, Julie, it's really cool to speak to you because you've received so much attention here for your lawsuit and you've become kind of the face of this effort here on behalf of Taylor Swift fans who are unhappy with this ticketing system. Uh, how did you get involved with this? You know, initially, I just had a very poor experience in the pre-sale here in the United States, very similar to, I'm sure, many of the Toronto Swifties trying to get tickets. I was unable to get tickets. Um, and, and I mean, I won't go into all of it, but it was really bad experience. And I posted about it on TikTok and an attorney reached out to me. She's also a Swifty and, um, and had similar experience. And we talked a little and, and we just decided it was time to make a stand and make a change. Yeah. So what was your experience when you tried to buy tickets? Did you end up having to pay like an inflated price to get, or did you actually, were you successful in buying tickets eventually? So on the initial pre-sale, I spent eight hours online trying. I actually tried 41 times, like had tickets in my card and tried to buy and would get told someone else got them or I would get an error. Um, I was charged $14,000 and didn't have tickets. What? So I did eventually. $14,000? $14,000. All of those transactions added up to that. Um, and they were just like temporary charges. Like I got them, I got the money back in 10 business days, but it meant that I was unable to get tickets during the Capital One pre-sale the next day because I had to use that same card um, in order to qualify for that sale. And so I did end up getting tickets, but I had to buy them resale and pay, you know, an inflated price for it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I know for people who they're paying thousands of dollars for tickets to, to see these shows. Let's talk a little mm -hmm. bit about your lawsuit, Julie. Like, what is, what is the status of the lawsuit right now? We are actually, right now I'm in a car. We just left Federal Courthouse in L.A. Um, our, our, we weren't at a hearing for our case, but a, another case that has implications for ours. So, we're, we're you know, we're, it's a long process to go through a lawsuit, but... Um, the case we heard today was kind of going over the uh, arbitration clause that Ticketmaster has, where they say you can't sue them and you have to go to arbitration. And uh, it was, it was, again, it was for another lawsuit, but the judge uh, is going to rule favorably toward us, we believe, that the that the arbitration is unconscionable. So we're, we're very hopeful about it. And then, you know, it'll go to the next phase. But our particular lawsuit has 355 Swifties as plaintiffs. And we are suing all with individual causes. It's not a class action. So individual plaintiffs. And really our goal is to break up Ticketmaster and make change so that live entertainment isn't this messed up. Right. Okay. That's that's fascinating because there have been calls for precisely what you just said, that this company has got a near monopoly on this system and it, and it should be broken up and and allowed for more competition and maybe that would make things better because I've heard people say like, wait, wait a second, are, are these Swifties, these Taylor Swift fans, are they launching this lawsuit just to try and get tickets to their shows or are they just trying to get, get money out of Ticketmaster? But you're saying that's not your motivation, right? I, I, I don't care about the money and I did yeah. buy tickets. So I'm, I'm not in it to get tickets anymore. I, yeah. I want to see change happen. Yeah. And the change would be like you think that what Ticketmaster is too powerful it should be it should be what opened up to more competition. I think they're too powerful. It should be opened up to more competition so that they are forced to have a better um, system. Because like really, there anyone that's been on their computer system trying to buy tickets would agree it's yeah. it's a really bad system. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially when but, you're paying that. Yeah, but they're happy to keep it because they're getting the fees. And and what what would compel them to be better?
Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm sure Ticketmaster is pretty happy with the system. Okay, but well, let's listen to the uh, let's listen to the the president of of Ticketmaster here. So this is this is Joe Berktold, and he's the president of Live Nation, which is basically the owner of Ticketmaster. And this is him testifying in front of a U.S. congressional committee on this issue, especially around the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco. And here's what he had to say, uh, Julie. Then I'll get your thoughts. We apologize to the fans. We apologize to Ms. Swift. We need to do better, and we will do better. In hindsight, there are several things we could have done better. And let me be clear, the Ticketmaster accepts its responsibility as being the first line of defense against bots in our industry. It's an ever-escalating arms race. Okay, so Julie, you heard him apologize to Taylor yeah. Swift and to her fans. So I guess that's effectively an apology to you and, 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 your other, and the people in the, your lawsuit. But I, I, obviously that's not good enough for you. But then he blames, you hear him blame bots, right, which are basically robots right. that bots that buy up all these tickets on the Ticketmaster website, and that's the, that's the problem. What do you think of that? I would say they're putting the bots in. They're, they're allowing the bots to be in. And, and really my answer to him would be to quote Taylor Swift, Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. You need to fix it and fix it in a better way. Um, here in the U.S., they just had a pre-sale yesterday for Miami, for the dates that they announced for next October. Yeah. And it went exactly the same as last November. There were immediately thousands of tickets on the resale market that bots got in and purchased. So they clearly haven't figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. And you heard him describe it there. He says, well, our company's basically in a war with these, with these robot ticket buying programs, these bots. And he described it as like a technological arms race that sometimes they're not winning. You're not buying that? You think you think they're what? How do you know they're letting the bots in? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, like I like I I tried to go to the Miami sale and the way it's set up right now, last time they had a code that you had to put in once you got into the site after you got through the queue. This time when you log on, it knows your website or your email address and your account was not assigned access. It tells you you don't have access. This is a protected queue. So how are bots getting in with an email address? Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that like, that, and at the, also the side note to that, they have some incentive to allow the bots in because they are taking a huge convenience fee on those ticket sales. The initial price of the ticket, $100, they're getting $30. Um, then when those, when those scalpers or what, resellers, whatever you want to call them, go in and, and post those same tickets on Ticketmaster, they Ticketmaster then gets another thirty percent fee. Only this time it's three hundred or however much more. So they they definitely have monetary incentive to allow those bots in. Yeah, yeah, because they're taking a percentage cut on the sales, and it's bigger percentage when it's the scalper prices. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, Julie, last question for you: uh, What is the next step in your lawsuit here? When do you hope to actually get in front of a in front of a judge here? I think we um, are going to file some motions in the next few weeks. I think it, we're going to end up being a little bit tied to this other locket lawsuit, the one that we brought the hearing for today, and it may be pushed out a little bit. I mean, honestly, like I would obviously love to see change in a week or in a month, but the reality of it is the wheels of justice are slow and it does take time. So I'm just in it for the long haul. Julie, but thank I can you. Ask Jennifer, what's the next step? 
Uh, the next step will be Ticketmaster's filing their motion to compel arbitration in our own case, which we think is going to be a similar result based on what the judge ruled today. So what they're trying to do now is just delay filing the motion. That, I hope delay you heard that. But yeah, that's our next step. I did. I did hear it. Thank you to both of you for being on today. We're going to follow the case closely. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Happy to talk again anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.